You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. In this episode, I'm actually going to start kind of a mini-series within the longer series. We're going to talk about the Satan, Satan, and kind of Satanic figures as they emerge in Second Temple writings. But for that, we need to go back to the Hebrew Bible and see just how little you have a satanic figure, particularly in the earlier books of the Bible. We're going to talk a little bit about possibly why this figure develops or becomes more prominent in the Second Temple period, even from the beginning of the Second Temple period, as we'll see actually today. And um, and just how little this figure appears as such in the Hebrew Bible. Now, one thing I really won't be discussing in this mini-series is Satan in the Gospels. I am not a New Testament scholar, and I am just going to explore the books that I know well, and I'll let you draw whatever conclusions you want to regarding Satan in the Gospels. Uh, Feel free to kind of bring it up in the comments if you have questions. So let me first say something about Satan. I am still old enough that I remember a Saturday Night Live skit where uh, with the church lady and she would, you know, if someone was wearing red, oh, red, isn't that interesting? Who wears red? (laughs) Could it be Satan? Right? Because Satan is this huge deal. Well, first of all, Satan is the Satan is actually a pretty big, becomes a pretty big deal in Judaism, but not to the same extent that Satan does in Christian tradition. And certainly without all the mythology of Lucifer. And we're going to talk about that later. But I think anyone who's been following me in this series so far has already kind of gotten the idea of where ideas about Lucifer's fall could have come from, where it's kind of a combination of a satanic figure on the one hand and traditions about the Watchers, and in particular Shemichaza, who is a leader of the Watchers in that tradition. So a kind of a combination of those two traditions on the other. But let's be clear about what the Satan is not. Even when we have the Satan as kind of a demonic figure uh, in the later books of the Hebrew Bible, one thing that he isn't is something that someone that, or I should say, some creature that could actively oppose God. That is clearly not so. Another thing that he isn't is he isn't the snake in the Garden of Eden. I'm saying that because when I taught a course on concepts of sin to a class of undergraduates, this was something that anyone who came, in particular from a Catholic tradition, had a lot of trouble. They had a lot of trouble reading the Adam and Eve story without seeing the snake as Satan. And the snake is not Satan. The snake is a snake. It's a snake that can talk. It's a snake that isn't yet um, isn't yet separated from humanity by just his snake likeness. However, he's a snake. He's not a devil. He's not a demon, and he's certainly not Satan. Okay. All right. So let's um, let's uh, let me just give you kind of an overview of what we're going to see today. Uh, what we're going to see is that. The word Satan, which I'm sure a lot of you already know, means adversary. And in fact, that's the way the word is used for most of the Hebrew Bible. Once we get to works that are possibly um, from the Second Temple period, sometimes definitely from the Second Temple period, other times a high probability of being from the Second Temple period, that's where we see Satan as a figure as an actual character, as opposed to just a way of saying this guy is a really major adversary. And we're going to see that use of the word in 1 Kings, for example, in particular. Now, some of you may be saying, Second Temple Biblical books, what do you mean? In the Hebrew Bible? And the answer is, of course, yes, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Where do we have Second Temple books in the Hebrew Bible? Well, there are two types, we could say, of Second Temple books in the Hebrew Bible. One is those books that even according to 
the Jewish tradition, even according to the most religious people that there are, are books that were written during the Second Temple period, namely those books from what we call the Return to Zion. In other words, during the after uh, the Persian conquest, when the Jews were allowed to go back to their ancestral land and rebuild their ancestral temple, in the very that's that's kind of the close of the Hebrew Bible, and we have books from that period. So those books would be the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They would be the books of Chronicles, which retells mainly uh, Samuel and Kings, but it's written in the beginning of the Second Temple period, and we really see certain aspects of even Second Temple interpretation already in these books. In addition, uh, books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, of course. Ezra and Nehemiah are books written during the beginning of the Second Temple period describing the beginning, the return to Zion, the beginning of that period. So these books, of course, um, are are technically essentially from the Second Temple period. They're from the return to Zion, from the time when Jews come back and begin to rebuild the temple. Then we have other works, and I remember remember what I said last in the last episode, for those of you who heard it, when I was talking about scripture. And I said one of the things that determined whether a book got into the Judean Bible was whether you could say that it was written before or during the time of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the prophets of the return to Zion. So if you could date a book to that period or before, then you could still say that it was written under the influence of prophecy. But since traditionally prophecy is supposed to end with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, if it was written definitively afterwards, like the book of Ben Sirah, even if you like it, even if you think it's, it, you kind of think it's authoritative, it can't really get into the Hebrew Bible the way it's defined, at least for Judeans. And of course, again, I said that the Alexandrian Bible, for example, did not work that way. The Jewish community in Alexandria saved many books that the Judean community did not. However, and this is very important, how would someone from the Second Temple period know, or or from after the destruction of the Second Temple, how would they know whether a book was written before Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi? In general, they would know that because of the um, because of the title that the book would give itself, assuming that they trusted it. So I, I would say that in general, most people probably did not trust that the Book of Enoch was actually written by Enoch, but people did trust that the book of Kohelet, for example, was written by Solomon, uh, by Shlomo. Um, They trusted that the book of Psalms was written by King David. They trusted that uh, the book of Daniel was, could be attributed to Daniel, right? And Daniel is, of course, functioning during the end of the Babylon, during the end of the Babylonian Empire, the beginning of the Persian Empire, according to the story of the book, now, academics today do not date Daniel to the Persian period. They date Daniel very definitively to the Second Temple period, actually to the Hellenistic period, because uh, they read Daniel as referring to Judah the Maccabee, essentially, as a messiah. And because of that, it was written during the Hasmonean Revolt, more or less. However, the book itself dates itself to the to the the Babylonian exile and the Persian period. So, any Jew who believes that attribution would say, "Okay, this was written before the return to Zion." So, if I think it's a holy book, it can actually be included in the Hebrew Bible. Now, at the same time, we also have books that seem to have uh, additions from the Second Temple period. Now, such a book is the Book of Job. Okay, the Book of Eov. Obviously, there are going to be different opinions on this. But anyone who reads uh, the book of Eov, particularly in Hebrew, will notice a major difference between the language of the beginning and close of the book and the language of the meat of the book. The language of the meat of the book 
is very poetic and very difficult to understand. The book of Eov has probably the most hapax legomena of any other book. What is hapax legomena? I hear you ask. Hapax legomena is a word that I love to say just because no one knows it. Uh, it means something that is uh, said once. It's a word that's used only once in the entire Bible, and therefore we have a, a hard time knowing what it means. It, it's from it's from the Greek. It's two words in Greek. Hapax, hapax legomenon, something that is said only once. Hapax once, legomenon, something said. And then when we say words that are used only once, we make it um, multiple from legomenon to legomena, things that are said only once. Hapax legomena. Uh, if you remember, I've mentioned this before, that a lot of the rules that we use to try and determine what makes something the original work? How do we know if something, some text is the original version or not? That uh, line of inquiry began in, we began with, with the Greeks, actually in particular the Library of Alexandria, where uh, people were very concerned about getting to the original Homer, etc. So a lot of times we'll find that terms that are used are, are being brought from the Greek. At any rate, Eov is a very difficult uh, book to understand. And in fact, uh, there's a joke about it. It's not such a ha-ha joke, but I'll repeat it anyway. Um, the joke is that in Psalms, of course, one chapter has nothing to do with the next chapter. In Proverbs, one verse has nothing to do with the next verse. And in Eov, one word has nothing to do with the next word. Now, of course, it's not actually that bad, but it can be kind of hard to understand, but the beginning and the end are actually very clear. It's a very clear story with the Satan going and kind of uh, having a little kind of a bet with God, right, about whether Eov is going to break down and curse God after he has essentially everything taken away from him. And then this kind of peculiar ending where uh, Eov is compensated for the children who have died with more children, which is kind of distressing. Now, uh, what many um, what many academics say, and it, it, and it, if you if you especially when you read it in Hebrew, but also if you are a little bit familiar with, for example, Egyptian wisdom literature with other wisdom literature that exists, uh, the idea is that that the meat of Eov, the the central story, was actually uh, quite old, and then you have in the Second Temple this kind of introduction and ending that were added and that gives a kind of a narrative structure where the meat of the book is really someone who's suffering and you don't know why. No, you don't know why. You, the reader, don't know why he's suffering. Remember, think of it as if you didn't have the introduction to the book of Eov. Uh, you you just see this guy suffering tremendously and all his friends are saying, you must have sinned. You must have sinned. Think back. You've got, you must have sinned. And he's like, no, 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 I didn't. And you, the reader, don't know. Like his friends, you're thinking, wow, he must ascend. And then at the end, God comes and says, no, leave this guy alone. He didn't sin. What? I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Sort of thing. I mean, there, there are different different interpretations, obviously, of what God's answer means. But it almost seems like just the fact that God has answered him, just the fact that God has, as it were, appeared to him, that's what makes Eo feel better, that now he knows that he hasn't sinned. That's not why this happened. But in the Second Temple period, we have this nice uh, frame for the book, which actually gives us an explanation of why this happened to Eov. And then it ends with kind of a happy ending, quote unquote, where Eov gets paid back for all his suffering. Just as an aside, um, I can't keep myself from talking about books that I'm interested in. Just as an aside, um, I personally think that I think that a lot of people read the book of Eov, again, the book of Job. I think a lot of people say, oh, if you're suffering, this is a book to read. This is a book to um, to help you with your suffering. I'm actually not, I actually don't think of it that way. I think this book was not written for Eov. I think this book was written for his friends. In other words, I think this book was written for those people who read, let's say, the book of Proverbs and say, okay, everything, if you do good, you will get good. And then what's the logical, what's the logical um, follow-up on that? is that if something bad is happening to you, you must have done bad. 
And the book of Eov is saying, no, that's not true. That isn't true. You can't say that. All right? You have no idea what's going on. You're looking at this from the outside. You don't know what's happening. The last thing you can do to someone is, who is suffering is saying, say that they sinned and that's why they're suffering. That's what I think the book of Eov is about. I also think that it's very important that it was included in the Hebrew Bible because what that tells people is that when they are suffering, they are allowed to cry out and say, why is this happening to me and this is terrible. You're allowed to feel bad. You don't have to smile through all the garbage. If you're, if you're truly suffering, you can cry and say, I'm suffering and I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? That's okay. You can say that. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. And that especially doesn't mean that other people should try and talk you out of it. Okay, that was an aside about the book of Eov. Back to our topic. So in the book of Eov, there we really have Satan as a character, uh, but that only in the beginning and the conclusion, not in the body of the work. And the beginning of the conclusion and the conclusion are possibly from the Second Temple period. So that would kind of fit. Now, obviously, you get into this problem here. Um, whenever something fits really nicely is, well, are we making a circular argument? In other words, am I saying, well, it's a Second Temple work because it's got the Satan in it and it has the Satan in it because it's a Second Temple work? You understand what I'm saying? But the fact is that just from the language, just reading the language, it seems much more understandable and easily flowing the beginning and the end, whereas the um, the uh, meat of the book has more in common with ancient um, ancient wisdom literature and has much more difficult language, which seems to indicate that it is older. But let's go back to the beginning, as it were. So what I'm going to do now is just kind of take you through, and the truth is, you guys can do this, anyone who reads Hebrew and has an, a concordance, a good Hebrew concordance that I would recommend is the Evan Shoshan. Evan Shoshan is a very easy to use concordance, and it doesn't, uh, uh, and it just gives you a list. So if I just take my Evan Shoshan concordance, uh, a famous, another famous concordance, of course, is the Mandelkorn concordance. He uh, famously went crazy doing it. Um, this was before computers, but uh, I still recommend the Evan Shoshan. So if if we look at the Satan, there are a couple of interesting things. First of all, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find the Satan, the word Satan, appearing in certain very specific places. We have it in Numbers. We have it in First Kings. And then we have it um, very clearly in used in the way that we would expect it to be used in works that we date to the Second Temple period. So that would be Zechariah, which of course even traditionally is in the Second Temple period. Chronicles, again, traditionally in, within, in the beginning of the Second Temple period. The beginning of Eov, of Job. And then we find something interesting and... Psalms is a special case because uh, because the difference between the tradition and um, the academic approach to Psalms is so wide that traditionally, of course, the Psalms are dated to King David, whereas in general, they're treated as Second Temple works in academic discourse. So in Psalms, what we have is something very interesting, actually, is that we have the Satan, or rather an adversary, appearing in one place where it could very easily simply be read as a wicked person. And elsewhere, we actually have the word Satan used as a verb, meaning to be adversarial or people who are very adversarial, people who are my enemies. Now I hear you ask. But that's not a verb. That's a noun. Well, it's a stated verb uh, describing a state of being adversarial. Sotin, right? As opposed to satan. And sotnai are those who are being adversarial to me. My adversaries. Such an interesting use of satan and the, the, just to make it clear, it's unusual to see the word satan used as a verb. Okay, you don't you don't see it a lot, or certainly not um, the way it's used in Psalms, where um, where it's used for sotnai, 
uh, my adversaries, right? My enemies is a very unusual use. And it's an interesting kind of in-between use, you could think, of, in terms of saying someone's just using the word Satan as adversary and being used more and more for like real enemies, the wicked, or in one place, the word Satan being used in parallel to a wicked person, where it's not very clear whether it's hinting at some kind of demonic Satan or just an adversary, a wicked person. Although, as we'll see, it really does seem to be indicating a human being rather than a demonic force. So it's a very interesting um, and a very interesting development that we see in Psalms itself. So let's um, let's go actually in just in the order of the Hebrew books. So I'm going to start with Numbers. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can open to Numbers 22, B'midbar Chavbet. And in Numbers 22, we actually have the word Satan for adversary twice. The story is, of course, that Bilam is about to go and curse the Israelites on behalf of Balak. And on the way, an angel stands in front of him as an adversary, as a Satan. Okay. Now, this is an interesting use of the word Satan because, of course, it's very clear that in this case, the Satan is good. The Satan is an adversary to Bilam to try and stop Bilam from doing something bad. And the Satan is actually an angel who has been sent by God to stop Bilam from cursing the Israelites on behalf of Balak. Now, an important point here is actually that it's not the Satan. It's a Satan, an adversary. It's simply describing the angel as an adversary. It's not making a kind of a statement over who the Satan is. There is no the Satan. There's an adversary, in this case an angel, who's doing God's will to be adversarial to Bilam. So it says twice, it says in chapter 22, verse 22, that God was angry at Bilam going, and an angel of the Lord placed himself on the path to be a Satan for him. Le Satan lo, to be an adversary for him. And then later on in chapter 22, verse 32, it says the angel himself says, why are you beating your donkey? Because what's going on is the donkey sees the angel, the donkey stops. And Bilam is like, why is my donkey stopping? So he just beats him. He doesn't see the angel. And finally the angel says to him, what are you beating your your uh, your donkey for here three times I came out behold I came out as an adversary to you so there, here it's clear that the word satan is an adversary and there's nothing negative about it okay now let's see how it's used in, in kings in first kings so the first place we see it in first kings is when Shlomo is about to build the temple. He's about to build the Beit HaMikdash. And he uh, sends a messenger to Hiram, the king of Tyre, the king of Tzor. And he says, you know that, and I'm reading now from 1 Kings 5, verse 17, that you know that my that David, my father, was not able to build a house in the name of the Lord his God because of all the wars that were around him. And then he continues and he says, uh, By the way, uh, in Jewish tradition, you don't, you can't say the name of God unless you say an entire verse. So sometimes you'll hear me do that. So now the Lord my God has given me respite from everyone around. There is no Satan and there is no um, pegara, any, and there's no kind of any, uh, here I have a translation, mischance, but it's not clear whether it also means something kind of just generally evil around, okay? There's no adversary. What the simple meaning seems to be, I don't have any real enemies now. So now is the time when we're at peace to build a house. And that's, that's a simple meaning of the word adversary. Now we actually find the word Satan several times in the book of Kings. In particular, in chapter 11, we have it three times. And it's always talking about a person. So in chapter 11, we see in verse 14, Vayakom Adonai Satan l'shlomo 
את הדד האדומי מזרע המלך הוא באדום. God raised up an adversary for Shlomo. Satan לשלומו. Who did he raise up? Hadad. Hadad the Edomite, who was a descendant of the, of the king of Edomite. He was from the royal family. So he, God kind of created this thorn in the side. He raised up an adversary. What's very interesting here is that the Satan, even though he's just a human adversary, is placed firmly kind of in the hands of God. God created this adversary. What's, and there's already, and this is very interesting, that even in these earlier biblical books, I mean, in Numbers 2, the Satan came from God, right? The adversary came from God. When, um, when an angel confronts Bilam, he's a Satan. He's an adversary for Bilam. Here there are human, there's a human Satan that God raises up against Shlomo. And even when Shlomo was talking about, and I didn't read this inside, when Shlomo was saying, now there's peace, now there is no Satan, when he, when he says the war, he says, God kind of had these wars for me to fight. Or had these wars for my father to fight. So it's in, it's interesting that there's already this kind of uh, nuance to the word Satan, which seems to indicate that the Satan, whatever kind of adversary it is, has to somehow come from God. God is responsible. We have and we have a similar language just a few verses on. So if we look at verse twenty three, it says, "Vayakom Elohim lo Satan et lozon ben Eliada shebarachm et hadar ezer melech sova." Adonav. So, and God raised up a Satan, an adversary, who Rizon, the son of El, of Eliada, who had fled from his Lord, Lord King Hadad Ezer of Sova. And then it continues on in verse twenty-five. That person, that person, Rizon, became a Satan, an adversary to Yisrael all the days of Shlomo, all the days of King Solomon. So here we have, once again, God raised up an adversary, and yet this person is a human being. In both cases, they're royal signs, they're members of the royal family, and they are adversaries to King Solomon. So here we have a use of, of um, Satan as, as an adversary, as a human adversary. If we look at uh, the book of Psalms, I always use the uh, the numbering according to the Hebrew Bible. So if we look at seventy one, thirteen, I an Aleph Yod Gimel, Yevoshu Yichlu Sotne Nafshi, may may they be ashamed and be destroyed. The Sotne Nafshi, the adversaries of my soul, those who are actively adversaries of my soul, those who oppose, not really my soul, excuse me, really those who oppose my life. People essentially, people were trying to kill me. So we have in Psalms 109:20 similar use. Zot peulat sotnai me'et Hashem. May this be the um, recompense, the action of God against my adversaries, my enemies. Sotnai, my adversaries, and this is not the same as like my Satan. As I mentioned earlier, it's using the stative form of a verb to describe those who are actively my adversaries. And we have this several times in Psalms, this kind of use of, instead of Satan, Sotne, Sotnai, my adversaries, we have Yilbishu um, Sotnai Klima, later in that, in that same uh, chapter, 109, verse 29, may my adversaries be dressed in shame, essentially, or wear shame, as it were. And again, we see the verb form of Satan, Yistinuni, Yistinuni Tachat Rodfitov in in Psalm thirty eight twenty one, that they have um, they have opposed me in recompense of me chasing after good. I've chased after good, and they've done evil to me. Yistinuni. Tachat ahavati yistinuni. Also in in also in the same chapter we were reading before, one hundred nine, verse four. Tachat ahavati yistinuni. Instead of my love, in um, kind of in in recompense for my love, they have opposed me. They have done evil to me. So we're seeing the word Satan being used as a verb, 
to talk about people and their evil actions. So it's a much stronger use in terms of evil, but it's not demonic in any way in Psalms. Now, where's the one possible place it might be a little demonic? Uh, and still, I, I, I tend to think this is really talking about people. If we look at, um, again, in the same, in the same uh, Psalm 109, we say, uh, it says, Let me actually read. And, and by the way, so you say, well, why are we seeing this in so many places in one chapter? And in general, once you start talking, and, and I'm, I'm trying to be careful here because Psalms is really one of the places where we see a real clash between traditional, before even getting to like biblical source criticism, we see a real clash between tradition and the academic approach. From an academic perspective, each psalm needs to be examined separately to determine what time period it's from. It might be from, uh, say, post-exilic, the post-exilic period. It may be uh, reflecting earlier language and earlier ideas. And of course, we need to remember that traditionally also the Psalms are attributed to different people. Not all the Psalms are attributed to David within the Psalms itself, but generally the um, attributions of the Psalms, the dating of the Psalms is, is, are, is done based on each individual Psalm. Oh, and just to mention that the titles of the Psalms that attribute different Psalms to different points in David's life, those are usually considered to be from the Second temp- Temple period. Uh, by academic scholars. And so it, it so it's not that unusual in Psalms actually that we're going to have a, a a kind of conflation of the same word being used a lot in a specific chapter. And that's what we see in in verse in uh, Psalm 109 where we see this word satan in all its conjugations. We see it being used as a verb and yistinuni. We see it being used as kind of a describer of people, right? So tonight, more than once. And we also see the simple word Satan. It's in 109 verse 6. It's, it's actually talking about the person who is um, who is opposing the speaker. The speaker is saying, uh, I, have, I have an enemy. And he's asking from God. He says, let him suffer. Let him be accused. And so he says, Hafked alav rasha, appoint a wicked man over him, visatan ya'amod al yimino, and may an accuser stand on his right side. What, what's the satan here? The satan here is actually being used more in the court sense. He's an adversary, someone who's going to accuse him in court. Why do I say in court? Because you look at the next verse. When he is judged, may he come out, may essentially may he be convicted. Okay. Rasha and Sadiq, uh, words that we usually translate as wicked and righteous, are also used in a legal t- context. Uh, in, in the Bible and in particular in, in Psalms to mean uh, kind of the, con- the, con- the guilty and the innocent. Sadiq is someone who comes out who's actually innocent of the crime or, he sh- or he's innocent of whatever he's being accused of. So here, may he be convicted. But the idea is, so again, I'm going to go back to verse 6, appoint a wicked person over him or appoint someone guilty over him, and someone, and he'll have an adversary standing to his right to accuse him, what it seems to be in a court of law, and then when he is judged, may he be convicted. So again, we're not still not seeing, even though you could read it, and it could be interpreted as saying, uh, is, is as simply saying, instead of may, you might simply say, um, and a, a wicked man is appointed over him, and the Satan stands on his right to whisper in his ear, right? That's how we're used to thinking of Satan. But if we actually look in the context of Psalms and what it's talking about is it's really talking about this person who should be convicted in the human court of law for what he's doing. But we still haven't gotten, we still haven't gotten to the Satan as any sort of demonic or devilish presence. Where do we really see 
the Satan as this kind of character? Well, we see it in the introduction to the book of Eov, to Job, and we also see it in books that are very clearly from the Second Temple period, from the beginning of the Second Temple period. So let's let's look at those now. First, let's open up uh, Eov. And let's say, what exactly do we know about the Satan from Eov? Well, first we know, if you look at you know, chapter 1, verse 6, all of the Bnei Elohim, Bnei HaElohim, come to stand before God. Who are the Bnei HaElohim? They seem to be the angels who are members of the divine court. So they're all coming, and who comes among them? The Satan. The Satan also came. Now, Satan again means adversary. Here we have the divine court. And here we have a, a creature who is called the Satan. Now, what we might expect is within the divine court, this is his job. His job is to be an accuser. His job is to, uh, is to accuse people. And in fact, he uh, seems to do his job pretty well, right? Because, uh, you know, God says, where have you been? He says, oh, I've been all over. And he says, hey, have you noticed my, my servant Eov? He's great. He fears God. And the Satan is like, nah. You, you did everything for him, and that's why he fears God. And, you know, we, we, we all know the story. Satan kind of, as it were, uh, eggs God on. and says, oh, you know, if you just take everything from him. Take his possessions. Now take his children. Now hurt him physically. Then we'll see if he's still such a God-fearer. And of course, uh, he does in fact remain a God-fearer. And in the end, uh, gets, is, is rewarded both with acknowledgement by God and, uh, and you know, riches and more children and etc., etc. That's of course in the complete book. All right. But this, the reward and the kind of introduction where we understand, which kind of explains to us why Eov is suffering if he's so good, that's where we really have the Satan. What's interesting is that the Satan is clearly not a particularly positive character here. He is, is a member of the divine court. He's not opposing God. He's, um, he's saying, hey, I, I don't believe this guy's really a God-fearer. Let, let's test him out. So he's still, he's a negative character who is one of the divine beings. He is still, however, messenger of God. And, he's with, and, and he does not oppose God. Now let's see how, uh, he, how this character of the Satan plays out in works that we know are very clearly Second Temple period works. And what's interesting is some of the things that I talked about, if you remember, when I talked about how in Jubilees, Mastema is used as kind of an alternate for God, where place, or as a way of kind of smoothing over places in the Hebrew Bible where we don't, where there are some ethical problems or other problems with things that God seems to be doing. And not just Mastema, obviously, there are other ways that Jubilees deals with it, but Mastema is a satanic character where when it seems like in in the book of Exodus, God is attacking Moses, instead it's Mastema who attacks Moses. So what happens in Chronicles, Chronicles is a retelling of, for the most part, it's a retelling of the books of Samuel and of Kings. So one of the interesting things that we can do is compare the books and look and see where Chronicles changes the account. Now, by the way, Chronicles also seems to have other sources that it uses to fill in certain missing information in in the books of Samuel and Kings. But there are also places where it's clearly trying to explain some kind of problem with which are which is within the book. Uh, so let's take an, let's take a look at an example of that. And that the clear example, and I, I imagine that that those of you those of you in the know are already already know about this in in First Chronicles twenty one one. It says that. An adversary stood against Israel, Satan al Israel, and he led he led David astray, causing him to count Israel. 
And of course, the result is that there is a plague, okay? Because you're not supposed to count Israel, right? And, and in the in in the continuation, it says, and and God was God was angry about this. Well, essentially, and and this this uh, was evil in the eyes of God. This thing, and God smote Israel. Now, what is this? retelling this adversary this satan who stands against israel and got david to count israel if we look it's talking about uh, it's retelling second samuels 24 1 the lord continued to be angry with israel and he led david astray saying Go count Israel and Judah. And it's kind of, hey, what the heck? You know, if God with if God led David astray, then why should they be punished? And in fact, in, in 2 Samuel, uh, David regrets it and he says, I have sinned. God, please take my sin because I've been very foolish. And so the author or the editor, the redactor, whatever you want to call him, of Chronicles has this problem. How can you say that God did this? It doesn't make sense. God led David astray to count Israel when it would be bad to count Israel? That doesn't make any sense. So here we really see the beginning of kind of the use of a Satan-like character, a Satan. We don't know who this adversary is. Right. If you really wanted to, like if we were used to reading Satan, if we didn't have all the uh, baggage that we now have with the Satan, we could read this as a person. We could just say that the author of Devrehayamim of Chronicles is saying, uh, oh, there was some adversary. There was some human adversary who said to David that they should count. But it doesn't It doesn't really sound like that. I'm, I'm going to read it again. Because it doesn't say, as opposed to Second Samuel, where it actually says, God said this to David, right? In, in Chronicles, it has in very general terms, there was an adversary stood against Israel, a Satan stood against Israel, and he led David astray to count Israel. He somehow influenced David to make this major mistake. Now, where do we have actually an even more interesting step on the development of a satanic character, a central satanic character, is in the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, I'll just remind you, is one of the prophets of the return to Zion. So once again, we're in the very beginning of the Second Temple period. Now, if I'll just remind you again, in Chronicles, it's a Satan. There's a Satan that's standing against Israel. In Zechariah, we have gotten to the Satan. So let's take a look. This is in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah, for those of you who are used to the English. There are a lot of, there are many um, interesting aspects of these verses of chapter 3 in general. Okay, Zechariah is Zechariah is seeing a dream. Um he's being shown a he's being shown a vision and he sees at the time uh they there's a uh, and and in general in the Persian uh, structure it wasn't unusual to have kind of a secular ruler alongside a priest. So that kind of works with the idea that you have the king, the Jewish king, alongside the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. So he sees the Yehoshua, who is essentially the designated high priest, Vayareni et Yehoshua Kohen Gadol, and he showed me Yehoshua, the high priest, Omed lefnei Malach Hashem, standing before the angel of, of the angel of God, Vahasatan Omed al Yeminoli Sitno. And the Satan stands on his right, licit no, either to lead him astray or to be his adversary, perhaps to accuse against him. Because remember, he's standing on his right the same way the um, the Satan or a Satan, an adversary stood, is supposed to stand on the right of the enemy to accuse him in the psalm that we read. 
So the Satan is accusing him or being his adversary, standing on his right. Vayomer Hashem el Satan yigar Hashem becha Hasatan. Vigar Hashem becha. This is very interesting. What happens in this verse is the Lord uses his own name as an incantation against the Satan. If you remember, I've talked about this before. What's the difference between a prayer and an incantation? Now, obviously, it's not that clear cut. There are plenty of times where you're not really sure and I'm making it a little bit too simple. But in general, a prayer is addressed to God. It may ask God for help against demonic forces. It may be what we call an apotropaic prayer, a prayer that's supposed to that's supposed to protect you from demonic forces, but it's asking God for his help or saying, you know, I need your help, God, however it's however it's addressing it. An incantation is using the name of God or the name of anyone really of angels or any sort of force as a magic formula against the evil forces. I know the trick. I'm using this as a formula against evil forces. Okay. And what's interesting here is what you have is God is using his own name as an incantation against the Satan. Okay. And there's a repetition of God's name. So I'm going to say, uh, in terms of, if you say the entire verse, Vayomer Adonai al Satan, Yigar Adonai Becha ha Satan, Vigar Adonai Becha, Habokel Yushalayim Haloza Ud Mutsal Meish. Okay, it's, it says, so the Lord says to the Satan, may the Lord rebuke you, the Satan. And and the word rebuke, yigar, is also a formulaic language, which is used in incantations against demonic forces. So it's using kind of an, the God is using God's name as an incantation against the Satan. Okay, so may so the Lord says to the Satan. I'm saying the Lord to indicate that it's it's you know it's using God's name already. The Lord said to the Satan, "May the Lord rebuke you, the Satan, and the Lord will rebuke you." And then it says, "He who chooses Jerusalem, for behold, it is a brand saved from fire." In other words, God has saved Jerusalem. Has saved what's left, the remnant of the Jewish people. And God is therefore rebuking you, Satan, the Satan. Now here we already have a demonic figure who's already called the Satan. In other words, we're supposed to know who this guy is. He's not just an adversary. He is the adversary. And God is using an incantation to get the Satan away from the high priest, Yoshua. And and what happens is, and it's also very important to see what the uh, result is. So God rebukes Satan, the, the Satan, away from Yoshua. And it says that Yoshua was um, dressed in, in this vision. Yoshua was dressed in clothing that had essentially had excrement on it. And he was standing before the angel and the filthy clothing is removed from him. And he is dressed in clean clothing, right? And pure clothing. And that symbolizes that the sin has been removed from him. It doesn't just symbolize. It says, behold, I have removed from you your sin." And it's very possibly talking about some kind of reality where Yehoshua had in fact done some things. And and Zechariah has this vision saying, even though Yehoshua has done been guilty of certain things in the past, this is being removed from him. And it's being removed from him. This sin is being removed from him and, it's, and he's being dressed in pure clothing after the Satan has been rebuked away from him. Now, if we see the Satan still in his adversarial role, remember he's standing on his right Right, no to be us to accuse him possibly. So then we could say, well, the Satan had to be rebuked away from him, so he couldn't accuse him of these past sins. And then we can remove this dirty clothing from him. Then we're free to remove the sinful clothing, and we're free to move ahead with Yehoshua as our high priest in pure clothing. What's interesting for us now is. 
just how developed this character of the Satan has already become during the return to Zion. Okay, so even though he may be still fulfilling an adversarial role, like an adversarial role within the Divine Court, it really seems that at this point he's pretty darn demonic. I mean, he's got to be rebuked away. God himself is using formulaic language and his own name to rebuke him away. So it's interesting just how much of a leap we've taken. If you remember where in the beginning, Satan was a general word for adversary. In the beginning, we were reading it, we were seeing it in a positive sense. We were seeing an angel that God has sent to stop Bilam says, I am a Satan. I'm an adversary for you to stop you from doing what God doesn't want you to do. Right? And then later on, we see that there are human adversaries that God raises up against, against King Solomon, against Shlomo. And in the Psalms, we saw that the speaker is using the language of Satan to talk about human adversaries. And yet here, and in Eov, in the be- and in the introduction to Eov, we see the Satan already as a very negative character, but as belonging to the court of angels. So we see him, he's negative, he's doing stuff we don't like, but he's part of the court of angels he kind of chats with God, you know, he, he's part of the divine picture. He's part of the divine game board. Here, here he's being portrayed as someone whose intent is simply negative and who God actually has to expel using formulaic language. This is a real leap, but we have seen, I mean, I just repeated kind of the development that we saw. Oh, and we saw in Chronicles, right? In Chronicles, where instead of God misleading David to count, it's a Satan. A Satan misleads David. So on the one hand, we have a Satan misleading David, eventually causing, misleading David into something that is a sin, causing causing a plague. We have uh, the Satan here in Zechariah, where he's um, he has to be rebuked away. We had a Satan as kind of a negative force within the divine court in the beginning of Eov. Why? Where is this coming from? Probably possibly less Eov and more of these others where Satan is this just generally evil character that has to be kept away from leaders. Where, where is that coming from? And the answer is it's not coming out of nowhere. It's not that it's not, there's nothing in the Jewish tradition that it could draw from. I mean, we had the kind of evil spirit that takes hold of Saul, of King Saul, right? Which I talked about before. It seems to be some kind of melancholy or some kind of um, some kind of madness. It's not personified, but we do have that kind of idea floating around. We do have an idea of kind of random demons that you know we have a mention of 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 Lilith, of uh, Reshef, of certain kind of demonic forces, you know, what's Azazel, right? We have this general idea, but this this personification into one main figure, and we're going to see how that plays out in different ways in in, in other in later Second Temple texts. This this main evil figure, what's influencing that development? So the question is, why do we get this development, particularly in the Second Temple period, and then what is what is influencing it? Not that there's no source in the Bible for it, but what's really causing this leap? And the answer seems to be the influence uh, of Persian thought during the Persian period. If you remember, we have, when we're talking about the beginning of the Second Temple period, the Jews, the Judeans who are returned, they have had a significant amount of uh, exposure to Persian thought. And what we know is Zoroastrianism, and of course this is a real problem because we don't really have Zoroastrian texts that date that far. That is, the written texts that we have uh, from Zoroastrianism are mainly Middle Persian texts, which are much later than this period, even though they seem to reflect oral traditions that go way back. But Zoroastrianism, which was apparently the official religion of the Achaemenid Empire, and that's when we're really talking about the tremendous amount of influence on the Jews. In general, you have this kind of dualism between Ahura Mazda, who's the kind of positive divine 
divine figure and Angra Menu, who is the evil one. And the extent to which this is dualistic is an argument. There's an idea called Zervanism, where uh, Ahura Mazda and Angra Menu are kind of twins that are themselves uh, subservient to a larger power, but most modern scholars today don't think that that was a separate religious uh, sect. In general, within Zoroastrianism, Angra Menu uh, is kind of this devil-like figure, but who's much closer to parody with Ahura Mazda. He's much closer to a real, um, a real opposer of Ahura Mazda than we have with, say, Satan vis-a-vis God. And he is essentially the evil force in the world. He's causing a lot of evil. That's his purpose. He's really the father of lies. That's what he really is. He's he's falsehood. So we have a major evil character whose whole point is just to be bad, right? And to cause evil and to lie. And when you're living in a in a culture where that's kind of a part of your basic beliefs or that's the way you're thinking, the way you're thinking in terms of good and evil, the way you're thinking as well, there's a God who's good. And there's also, there also needs to be some character out there, a major character, a powerful character whose motivation is evil and whose force is for evil. Not just all these random little demons or all these random little forces we can't explain that do evil things, but one major evil character. So we have that apparently in Persian religion, certainly in the Caymanid religion, uh, it seems to be uh, prominent. So if you're talking about the Persian period where uh, Jews have, where say Judeans, Jews have contact with the Persian Empire, that's really the Achaemenid period. And they do have the Zoroastrian religion is the official religion. So they at least come into contact with this general idea that there's a major evil figure. Now, once you start thinking in those terms, it's very easy to imagine and to apply it within a monotheistic system because in none of the and we're going to see this in in general in second temple texts there isn't an idea that there's an evil character that's equal to god that would be impossible that can't be all right because god is in the final analysis all powerful but there is an evil force that's somehow allowed to with to exist within the system and that's that ends up being one major evil character. Something that we don't really see that much earlier before what, I'm, what I've been talking about here. Before, um, bef- besides Eov and, and Chronicles and Zechariah, we don't really see this idea in the Hebrew Bible of one central evil um, otherworldly being that's got major power. But we see it, we start seeing it a lot in the Second Temple period. Not always called the Satan, okay? But in we'll see it, we'll see it with Blial in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We see it with Mastema in Jubilees. We do see a, a, a Satan figure. And that, and we need to look at where it's coming from. Not just in the Hebrew Bible, but also in terms of what cultures Jews were interacting with and how people started to think in terms of good and evil. Now, of course, we're familiar with the verse in Isaiah in 45.7. I'm actually going to start reading from 45.6, okay? Uh, I'll read it in English. I said, so that they may know from east to west that there is none but me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form light and create darkness I make a peace, well-being, and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, many see this verse as actually a response to dualism, saying, no, our God is one God who creates everything, right? And yet, and yet, it's so difficult to say that. It's so, it becomes such a problem for people to think that way. And even today, I mean, not just even today, throughout the ages, this has been a big issue. And again, it brings us back to the problem of theodicy. If God is so all-powerful and God is so benevolent, then why do bad things happen to people? 
And this has been a constant theological issue, and we really see it reaching a, 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 a almost a crisis point during the Second Temple period. So in Zoroastrianism, you have an answer, right, which is with these two opposing forces. So what's the answer going to be within Judaism? You can have these kind of chaotic, demonic figures, but in a way within monotheism, it's easier to handle if we have one evil figure that we can explain as part of a divine system. And we're going to talk about that more next time when we talk about how this uh, satanic figure plays out in different texts of the Second Temple period. I actually have a little bit of an announcement, which is that come November, I'm actually going to be in San Antonio, Texas, speaking at a conference. The Society of Biblical Literature is having its annual uh, meeting at in San Antonio, Texas this year. So I'll be in that area in November for all my Texan listeners. Maybe we can do some kind of meetup in a Starbucks or something. That would be cool. But thanks for listening. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.